0: So um, Penny approached me this morning and said something, something to the effect of that um, once again she would not be here for the message and um, I think Anne Marie said the same thing and so apparently there, there is a certain group of people who try to avoid hearing me preach Anytime they possibly can. So if you're in that group and you don't know it, you do have others that you can band with that try to make sure they're not in the room any Sunday morning that I'm preaching. In fact, Anne Marie's entire family is gone coincidentally because of COVID. So um, when I, uh, anyway, if I don't know you, if I haven't met you yet, my name is John Cabell and. Um, my connection to Paradise Springs kind of began mostly with my son, Jordan, who is a younger, skinnier, taller version of me that normally stands up here and leads the music. And he and his lovely wife, Tiffany, who also happens to be my daughter-in-law and the mother of my grandchildren. And so that's what our connect, my connection was and began coming here just to help Jordan out and kind of got more and more connected. But a couple things about me. Somebody had suggested that, you know, I should say some things about me. So um, I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor since I was ordained in 1990. I've been a pastor here in the Valley since 1992 at a few different places and in one form or another. And I'm a husband of 36 years. Is it 36? Yeah. 36 years and uh, two kids, one of whom you know. I have another, a daughter who lives in Texas with her husband. And um, let me see, I'm a guitar player. I play in a local cover band, so if you ever tend to hang out in any bars that use live music, you might see me there. And I might see you there, and we'll just show anybody <laughs> that we were in a bar together. OK, So you won't say anything, I won't say anything. Life will be good. When I first uh, began uh, a relationship with God, it was a long time ago. I had grown up with really absolutely no connection to who Jesus Christ was. I literally did not know Easter was about Jesus until I was nineteen. Wasn't opposed to it, wasn't hostile toward it. I knew people that called themselves Christians. They were friends. They were nice. You know, it was just one of those things that was out there. It was just never something that that until one day I saw as something that was for me. And then I There was a day, I can still remember that day, a big turning point, and uh, maybe some other time I can tell you that story in detail. But I remember when I was early on into this journey, I would hear other people who were Christ followers, people that went to church, and they would talk about God's will. Well, I don't know if that's God's will for me. Well, I'm really praying for God's will. And it was always regarding things like, you know, where should I work? Back then, who should I date? Who should I marry? It was always all these kind of things. Well, what is God's will for me? Some would go all the way down. I'm trying to think of which car to buy. I'm not sure which is God's will. And it always occurred to me, like, really? Does God have that kind of time? You know, that he's thinking about what car you're going to buy or, you know, that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I just wondered about it. And so what I've noticed is over the years, people are still kind of constantly asking themselves this question. What is God's will for me? Well, I want you to hold on to that until I get around to the back end of the message, and I'm going to come back to that point. But I just want to plant that seed in your head about what is God's will, because I think I can tell you exactly today what is God's will for you. You're going to leave here being able to answer the question, what is God's will for me today, right now? Now, if you're following along in a Bible, whether it be electronic or paper or anything like that, whatever it's made of. I'm going to be in Luke chapter 17. I completely neglected the idea of putting stuff up on the screen because I didn't have Jordan reminding me and you know, it's kind of like one of those things where I need to be able to blame it on somebody, so I'm blaming it on him instead of myself. We're going to be in Luke chapter 17 starting at verse 11. Uh, If you are somebody who reads the Bible a lot or has been studying the Bible for a number of years, you probably have some familiarity with the story that we're going to be looking at today. In Luke chapter 17, starting at verse 11, it's this story of the 10 lepers. Not leopards and not leapers. So it's not like 12 days of Christmas. What is that one song? How many leapers leaping? 10 lords of leaping. We're not talking about them, and we're not talking about leopards you know, the big cat kind of thing. We're talking about lepers, and these are people who had what? Very good. (laughs) Nailed it. Nailed it. Good job. So, while it starts in verse 11, says, While Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. So if you picture the whole area of what is now known today as Israel-Palestine, You have what would the Bible call Judea down on the bottom. You had Galilee up on the top, and in between was Samaria. Now, the problem with that is if you were Jewish and you needed to travel between Judea and Galilee, you had a problem because the Jews didn't like Samaritans. Samaritans were considered unclean because they were Jewish-Assyrian hybrids, so they weren't fully Jewish, they weren't fully Gentile, And they did worship God according to the law of Moses, but that was it. They only referenced the first five books of what we would call the Old Testament back then, what was called the Torah, okay, or the law. All right? So the Jews decided that they were boneheads, didn't get it, didn't like them, called them unclean. And then, but then Samaria was the sh- going through Samaria was the shortest distance to get from Judea up into Galilee. So they had problems with that. Then later on, they finally decided, well, okay. The priest said, okay, you can go through Samaria. Just only to do business, just don't touch them, don't touch any food that would be considered fresh or wet or whatever, and you know that way we could take the shortest distance and not and feel good in our conscience. You know, kind of the typical human thing if you know the standard doesn't fit our convenience, we don't move the convenience, we move the standard so that it better fits our convenience. So that's what was happening, and so. Jesus and his guys are traveling, and they're passing between Samaria and Galilee. And it says, he entered a village, and there were ten leprous men who stood at a distance, and they met him. Now, when it talks about leprosy here, just here's a couple of things so you you understand what we're talking about. Leprosy today is commonly known as Hansen's disease. They don't call it leprosy because you know, of the history of that term and all the baggage that goes along with it. But it basically, it would start with a white patch on your skin. So I'm kind of reading some definition here, so I want to make sure I get it right. And then it begins to spread over the body, including it would begin putting tumors on the victim's face. So it was impossible to hide. And if you had leprosy, according to the law of Moses, you were unclean. So then what happens is the leprosy would begin attacking the internal organs and begin attacking the tissue in between the bones and tendons in the extremities and it would make them unusable and numb. Now, because the lepers had to live outside of the city, they often lived out in the wilderness. Well, guess who else lives out in the wilderness? Animals. (laughs) Animals that are hungry. And if you have no feeling in your limbs and you're sleeping outside, and an animal begin, decides to come up and start feeding on your exposed flesh that you can't feel, guess what happens? An animal is eating your fingertips or your feet or your limbs, and you don't know it. And so often, while this form of leprosy in itself could be fatal, what would often happen is that people with this form of leprosy would actually die more from a, what's called a co-occurring condition, i.e., most of the time, infection. Okay, So there is also a less severe type of leprosy called a ter- tuberculoid, it begins the same way, but it can cure itself. Bo- the body can cure it. These guys that were considered unclean probably had the first type, Because it would require a priest's uh, authorization or confirmation to say that they had been healed. Because otherwise, if they had the other type, the priest could go, well, God didn't heal you, you just healed on your own. So that's a little bit of uh, history on that. So lepers were only, according to the law of Moses, they were only allowed inside the city gates to beg for money. Otherwise, they practiced this form of, maybe it's completely unfamiliar to us, but otherwise they were to be quarantined outside the city, and they were required to keep a certain distance from anybody else. Sound familiar? <laughs> okay, quarantined, distanced. So they approached Jesus, and really, Jesus is outside traveling with some people, and they are over here. They got nothing to lose, right? Jesus could refuse to talk to them. Somebody could shoo them away, but they got nothing to lose. If Jesus refuses to talk to them, they're just right back where they started. In fact, the odds are they probably think Jesus isn't going to want to talk to him because he's a Jewish rabbi. They don't hang out with lepers. (laughs) Maybe until Jesus comes along. So it says they raised their voices and they said, "Jesus, Master, have mercy on us." So Jesus is walking with his people, right? Okay, they're probably talking, and then they hear something. Like, what was that? Someone said, "I don't know." Was it? So it's, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And he gets his attention. So when Jesus saw them, he just looked at him. Let's pretend you're a leper. Sorry. Okay, good. Thank you for going along. I, did, I should have probably said something before I started, but, you know. Okay, thank you for playing along. So Jesus comes up to him, and he says, hey, all right, you know what? Go show yourself to the priest. The implication being, go show yourself to the priest so he can confirm you no longer have leprosy. Now, he didn't, it doesn't say that he healed him right there. It doesn't say that he touched him. It doesn't say that he did anything. He just walks up to these 10 guys who have leprosy and everybody else is like, "Doing this, they're backing up. But Jesus just walks right up and he says, all right, get up, go show yourself to the priest. That's all it said. And so it says, as they were going in verse 14, as they were going along, they were cleansed. They were healed. The leprosy left them, and it likely was very visible. As they're walking along, if they've got this type of leprosy that is visible on their body, these 10 guys are walking along, and suddenly tumors are disappearing. Skin is being restored. They can feel it inside. They can feel it in their limbs. They're walking along, and it's like, oh, my gosh. We're healing, like right now, right this moment. And 10 of them are walking along, and this is happening. And then it says, one of them, just one, one out of the 10. In verse 15, when he saw that he had been healed, meaning they could see it all over themselves, they could feel it, see it, it was manifest. He said, when he saw it, he turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice so suddenly he stops the other guys keep moving because they're going to the priest to get their confirmation that they're they're not unclean anymore so they can go back to living a normal life but it says this one saw that he was healed so he stops turns around heads back to where jesus and it says glorifying god with a loud voice So suddenly, he's turning around, and I don't know what that means. Is he singing? Is he shouting? But he's just going along, seeing his body restored before his very eyes, glorifying God with a loud voice. And So then he comes back to where Jesus is. And he says he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. Now, I'm going to make a statement. And at the end of my statement, it's going to be a very short statement, five words. I want you to go, (gasps) I want you to gasp in horror. Okay? I need need a little help here. I need a little support. Not a big job. Just one big, (gasps) like that. Okay? Do we need to practice or can we just do this? Okay. So it says, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. Perfect. (laughs) Nice. Nice job. And that's exactly the right response. <laughs> okay. Why? Why would that be the right response? Because here's Jesus, who's a Jewish rabbi, standing with all these other people. At this point, they're still all Jewish guys with him. And this leper comes up. Well, he's being healed, so he probably doesn't look like he did a minute a minute ago when he was back with them. But he's a Samaritan. So Jesus answers, said, Well, wait a minute. Weren't there ten of y'all before? Where's the other guys? Where's your nine friends? Well, they're not my friends because I'm Samaritan and they're Jewish. We just were all lepers. We kind of hung out in the leper area before. He said, well, where are they? Where's the other nine? Then he says this statement. It's really, really interesting. In the wall, in the worship proper area of the temple, there was an inscription. That particular building no longer exists. But there was an inscription in the wall that said, let no foreigner enter here. Now, it didn't mean foreigner in the sense that don't let anybody who doesn't live in Jerusalem enter here. That's not what it meant. It said, let no foreigner enter here. It's the word alaganes, which means basically any nationality other than Jewish. In, inside Judaism or inside the Bible, there's basically two races Jewish, not Jewish. Okay? There's Jewish and there's not Jewish. Okay? It's like Leonard Skinner had a really big hit. Does anybody remember what it was? Biggest hit Freebird. Yeah, go into any bar with a band, someone will yell Freebird. Okay? So really it kind of comes down to this band that had lots of hits, but really there was freebird and not freebird. <laughs> they had freebird, and then they had 20 or 30 songs that were not freebird. <laughs> okay? Well, this is that's the same idea here where it said, let no foreigner, no non-Jew come into our worship area. Now Gentiles were allowed in the outer court of the temple temple, but into the worship proper area where the Jews were allowed. No foreigners allowed. And that's the same word that Jesus uses in verse 18 when he says, okay, where are the other nine? Verse 18 comes along and he says, was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? Ten lepers walking back to the temple to go see the priest, to get their certificate of healing or whatever it was, stamp of approval, I don't know, whatever they did. One of them, upon noticing that they're being healed, all of them were being healed. One of them says, Wait a minute. I got to go back and glorify God. I got to go back to Jesus. And so Jesus says, Wow, this is interesting. Ten were cleansed. One, it occurs to him to come back with gratitude and, oh, it's a foreigner. It's the not-Jew guy. (laughs) The one who would not be allowed into the temple where God's people go to worship is the one guy who stopped walking, turned around, and before he went to get his certificate or whatever, said, I need to go back with gratitude and worship. And this isn't about measuring the spirituality of all these 10 guys. It's just an interesting observation that gratitude occurred to one of us. So much so that he delayed getting what all of them wanted on a human level. They all want to be declared clean. I want to be able to go back to my home. I want to be able to go inside my home. I want to eat dinner with my family. I want to be able to hug my children. And sure, they would be very motivated to go get that. But one guy said, no, before I do any of that, I need to go back with gratitude and worship. And so he did. And then Jesus said to him, stand up, your faith has made you well, your faith has saved you. You know, it's interesting in the Gospels with the healing accounts, the healing stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's what I mean when I say in the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' encounter with people. That all of the healing stories, some people say, well, they didn't really happen, they're just... You know, illustrative and trying to make a point. I don't think that's true. I think they all actually did happen as written. But it's interesting that the stories that were chosen to include, the stories of healing that were included, also serve. They serve a dual purpose. They tell a historical, factual story of how Jesus did heal people, but they also illustrate salvation, the idea of having a relationship with God experiencing God's forgiveness, experiencing God's love, the promise of knowing that if he died today, you'd be in heaven with him forever. They illustrate how people experience that. And this is an example. Jesus says, Go, your faith has made you well. What's interesting is that what's translated made you well is the exact same word that is also used for save. In Greek, it's sozo. It's, so, it's translated healed, Or saved, sometimes both. And how it's used in context. So Jesus is saying, your faith has saved you. Faith in what? What did he know about Jesus at that point? Not much. But he believed that Jesus was his answer. He believed that Jesus might heal him. And he believed that it was Jesus that did heal him. He didn't just stop on the road and say, I need to stop and give glory to God and gratitude to him. No, he went back to Jesus to do it. Did he understand that Jesus was God in human flesh? Did he understand superlapsarian and the kenosis and all this other theological stuff that nobody cares about? Well, people care about it. They just don't like using those terms. I only use those terms so that you'll think I'm smart. So it's really self-serving. In other words, that he didn't know a lot about Jesus except that Jesus was his answer. That's all he knew. And I told you that when I I did have a turning point in my life where I had never thought about Jesus, didn't know anything about Jesus, but one day it suddenly became very real to me that Jesus was my answer. I didn't know anything about him other than that I'd been with these people and that I knew and that they had something special, and I was like, I think whatever it is that they have is what I need. And they say it's Jesus. So I think that's what I need. So I can kind of relate to this guy. I don't know anything about Jesus except that he healed me. That's pretty big. So I'm going back there. That's where I'm going. You know, it's interesting in these gospel stories that. Social and religious outcasts were always drawn to Jesus. They believed that Jesus would accept them. They believed that Jesus loved them. I want to read a passage from a book called What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. And he is recounting a story in this book about something that happened to his friend. It said, okay, this is just directly from the book. It says, A prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. And through sobs and tears, she told me of the life that she had been living, all to just barely get enough money to live and to support herself and her daughter. And the person said, I asked if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. And he says, and he writes, I will never forget the look of pure naive shock that crossed her face. Church, why would I go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They would just make me feel worse. Interesting that often I wonder how often does somebody who is a social outcast, a religious outcast, the person who's at the end of their rope, maybe through some of their own decisions, maybe through the choices of others, that kind of person back then, would see Jesus and go, maybe he's my answer. But is that the case today? Do the people who are called the body of Christ, the visible manifestation of the invisible God, do they look at us and think, maybe my answer is there? Often not. Often, often, the body of Christ, and I'm not saying this church or you or me. I'm talking about, you know, the body of Christ in our world. Often we're seen as the ones who tell them that they're outcasts, that they're not welcome, that they're not loved, that it's their fault they're where they are. They got themselves there. They need to get themselves out. I'm not saying all. I'm not saying every. But it's not unusual. And so I've that's dumb. Um, over time I've come to the conclusion that if I don't see broken, hurting, and guilty people the way God sees them, if I don't look at people who are broken, hurting, guilty, and see them the way Jesus would see them. Then I can never expect people who are broken, hurting, and guilty to see me the way they saw Jesus. If I want to be seen by someone who is broken, broken, hurting, or guilty, and I want them to see what they saw in Jesus, I've got to first decide to see them the way Jesus saw them. As somebody who was created by God, who has inherent value, worth, and dignity by virtue of being created by God. Completely apart from their choices, completely apart from whatever has happened to them, whether they brought it on themselves or not, doesn't matter. If I am unwilling to see them as anything other than someone who is created by God and loved by God, then I can never expect them to see me the way people saw Jesus. I do believe that the body of Christ, whether it's a church or a group of individuals or however it is manifesting at any given moment, is supposed to be like a hospital, not like a museum. If the body of a Christ is a place where people are supposed to come here and admire all the fine examples of spirituality, that would be a museum. If the whole idea is for people to walk in here and go, oh my goodness, you guys are so spiritual. You sing songs and you open the Bible and, ah, oh, I just like looking at you. That's a museum. But in a hospital, what do you have in a hospital? Not a trick question. <laughs> Sick people. <laughs> Sick people that are broken, they're messed up, they're damaged. Sometimes those people are there because of their own choices. Bones. Very good. <laughs> Aside from all other parts that get broken. Really? That must have hurt. It ended under me. Well, there you go. Yeah. So you had to go to a doctor, right? Get fixed up. Well, that's exactly the way people need to see God. Maybe they fall out of a tree. Maybe they make a mistake. Maybe something. Maybe a tree falls on them. It doesn't matter. If you're broken, if you're hurting, if you're sick, you go to a hospital probably. That's the way the church is supposed to be. If you walk into a hospital and you're like, what are all these sick people doing here? I don't want to be there. Well, what if you're sick yourself? Well, maybe I am, but I don't want to be around a bunch of other sick people. Well, they don't want to be around you either, but that's where you need to go. That's the way the church is supposed to be. And if I'm coming to church, if I'm around believers and I'm there to compare my spirituality to theirs or their spirituality to mine. If I spend most of my time thinking about other people's sin instead of dealing with my own, then I'm probably thinking of the church more like a museum than a hospital. And we got to understand something. It's a lifelong thing. I don't know how many times, probably a lot, that I've had somebody sitting across the table from me or in a conversation they go, when, when do we get there? And I'm like, get where? When do we arrive spiritually? When are we done? And I'm like, I'm not sure what you're talking about. You know, like this whole thing, like you know, trying to overcome sin, trying to learn things like that. When do we finally <clears throat> we get up on top of it and then we're good? And I said, oh, good question. I said, right after you take your very last breath of oxygen. That's what's next. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, the Apostle Paul wrote, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it, will be completing it, technically the way it reads, will be completing it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, however you interpret that phrase, it essentially means a day when this life is over and now you're in the next. That's when you're done. That's when you're done. Not until then, which means that we're all still in a process of being put back together, of being worked on, of us having to deal with our stuff, all in that process. I'm a Christ follower. I've been a Christ follower for a while now, for quite a while, since around 19... 80-ish. But I still sin. I'm still broken. God's still working on me, changing me from the inside out. We're doing that completing, finishing work that Paul described. That's a signal that tells me I'm supposed to be done. But I still got a little bit more. <laughs> I know, I got it. <laughs> Sorry. I just try to take those opportunities. Um but the issue here today is gratitude because the way the Samaritan leper chose to respond upon seeing that he was healed, that, God, that Jesus had, had transformed his life radically, that from that day forward, life was going to be so different than it had been for a long time. His response was not, man, I got to go get my certificate. It was gratitude gratitude but there's barriers to gratitude sometimes one barrier to gratitude is entitlement if i was a samaritan and i was a samaritan leper i was sick up and fed with people treating me like i don't that i'm not important you know it's finally nice that somebody acknowledged my significance and worth so maybe i might not feel grateful I deserve this. I'm entitled to this. I've heard some people say, look, God's never given me anything. I've done everything for myself. I grew up in a difficult situation. I put myself through school. I started my own business. Whatever I have in life, I've done for myself. And I said, you know what? And that's really great. But who gave you those opportunities? Who created you to be born in a time and place where you could do that? Everything that we've ever been able, every good thing that we accomplish in our life can be traced back to a gift that God gave us. An opportunity, maybe it was being in a place at a certain time, that can always be traced back to something that God did for us that we could not do for ourselves. Okay, before we run out of time here. Remember I said at the beginning, what was it that I was going to come back to? Two words. God's will. That's right. With this thing of gratitude, I told you that I would tell you what God's will for you is today. I'm going to tell you that right now. How many of you have just been literally quivering in anticipation of me telling you what God's will for you is today? Okay. Well, I think there's probably a number of things that we could say are God's will for you today. Here's one. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances for this, giving thanks, is God's will for you. Well, what exactly does that mean? Okay, let me rephrase it. It is God's will for you to give thanks in all circumstances. Yeah, but sometimes I'm in circumstances that are really crappy and really lousy. Okay, yeah, I get it. I've been there. A few years back, I spent, you know, an entire, probably about half a year in and out of the hospital. One time I had a roommate who said, you know, Do you ever ask, why me? And I said, no, actually, I don't. I mean, really, why not me? I'm a human being who lives on planet Earth. People get sick here. God's not doing anything to me that other people don't have to deal with. But what I could be grateful for is being able to share with a roommate or nurses or anybody else that I wasn't afraid to die that one way or another, God was going to heal me. He might do it miraculously through because there was a bunch of people praying for me. He might do it through the doctors, or he might do it by ending this life and taking me to the next where I will be completely restored. I was okay with any one of those. I never felt entitled to anything. Never felt like God was being unfair or he was being too hard on me. And I'm not trying to say that, oh, see how spiritual I was. It's just that for whatever reason, you know, as a pastor, I had sat with enough people in the hospital and said all this stuff, and maybe it was God's time to go, well, let's just see how you do it. (laughs) You know, you've been telling people how to get through this kind of stuff plenty. So let's see how you do with your own theology. And guess what? God's word works. God's word worked that which I had shared with others, I started telling myself, and it works. It worked perfectly. Now again, it's not me. But because I was at a point in my life where I knew that something big was missing. And with about as much information as this leper... I said, I literally prayed one time. I said, all right, God, I think it's you that I need. I want you to come into my life. I didn't know what else to say other than that. And he did. And it was definitely a very spiritual experience. And yeah, then it involved a whole lot of learning who Jesus was and what that meant and how his death on the cross covered my sin. And through how, through God's grace, I could experience forgiveness and a hope that one day, Whenever that day came, I'd be in heaven forever with him. So here's the challenge today that I want to leave you with. Okay? Several years ago, I was not real satisfied with my prayer life. It's what Christians call prayer. You know, we don't just pray, we have a prayer life. I guess. <laughs> and so I was just feeling like, I don't know, it just seems kind of like, I feel like when I pray, all I talk about is myself. And, you know, have you ever been around somebody who all they want to talk about is himself? What's it like? Really boring, isn't it? It's like, oh, please, get it over with. So I wondered, like, how many times am I talking with God? And he's going, (laughs) you're going to get to the point sometime here? You've kind of been talking about yourself a lot. (laughs) You know, you just wonder, how often is God just irritated every time I start talking? Oh, good, John's going to talk about himself for a while going to tell me stuff I already know. (laughs) So I decided, all right, for two weeks, I'm only going to pray grateful prayers. I'm only going to pray gratitude. And someone said, well, how do you pray for someone else like that? I said, well, good question. Someone was sick. I could start saying, all right, God, thank you that you love that person more than I could ever that you care about them, that you know exactly what's wrong with them. Thank you that you created them, and you know what they need more than I do. God, you know that I care about them. You know that we want to support them. And so, God, you know what their answer is. Thank you that you love them, you care about them, you know what they need. Thank you that nothing stops you from doing what you intend to do. I say, God, thank you that I have a job, that even when it's hard, I can still say thank you for providing. God, thank you for the people in my life whom you often choose to use to develop things like patience and kindness and love, because they're really hard. <laughs> yeah. and you got to be careful there. You can't start trying to manipulate God. You know, there's times when it's like, God, thank you that you have positioned me such that I deserve a new car. (laughs) No. I think that's where God's kind of going, uh-uh, no. (laughs) But here's the deal. I want to challenge you. Maybe it's a day. Maybe it's a week. Maybe it's two weeks. I want to challenge you, only pray grateful prayers. And someone might say, well, isn't it just semantics? Maybe, but sometimes semantics influence how we think? Because if it requires that you have to be really paying attention to what you say when you're praying, isn't that a good thing? Because how often do we just pray and the words just sort of spill out because we've been doing it a long time? We know how to pray when someone's sick. We know how to pray for the food. We know how to do this. We know how to do that. But what if everything you pray had to be reframed in terms of an expression of gratitude? No more question marks at the end of sentences. No more, please, would you do this? Just, God, thank you for this. Thank you for that. Thank you that you know me. You know what's on my heart. You know what I need better than I do. You know me better than I know myself. Thank you that regardless of what I desire for myself or what I would seek, you know what's best. So I want to leave you with that challenge. You don't have to check back in. I think the rich may be calling you to see how it's going. But, you know, you don't have to tell me anything. But whether it's a day, whether it's a week or two, I did that for two weeks, and it radically transformed how I pray. And from that point on, that's how I do it. So it changed my life, so maybe it'll change yours. I don't know. I would just challenge you to give it a try. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. It tells us about ourselves. It tells us about you. God, thank you that you want us to know you because we're better off if we do. God, thank you that you know everything there is to know about every person in this room. Your word says the hairs on our head are numbered. You're paying attention. You know what we need. You know what we want, what we desire. And God, thank you that nothing stops you from doing what you intend to do. Thank you that your love is made available to each one of us, that all we have to do is say yes to your offer of grace, forgiveness, love, and spending eternity with you. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen.